0: Over the last 10 years or so, um, extreme races have kind of risen in their prominence. Uh, When I say extreme races, I'm thinking about those Tough Mudders, Spartan races, you know, those races that have the extreme challenges. People run a 5K or a 10K or a 15K, and they encounter a number of obstacles along the way. Sometimes it's mud, sometimes it's these huge pools of ice water. Uh, I saw one the other day where they had these little, um, like, strands of electrical wire that came down and you had to go underneath them and if you touched them, they shocked you. Like we torture ourselves with our exercise now. Um, my favorite as I look out of them that I want to do maybe someday if I can work up the courage is the inflatable 5K. Anybody ever seen that or done an inflatable 5K? Anyone? No, oh man, like I was hoping someone could share because I look at these videos of people running up these child obstacles and bouncing around and, and finishing this race and it just looks encouraging or, or incredible to me, um, I haven't ever signed up because when we go to a birthday party uh, of a family member or somebody and they've got bounce houses and obstacle courses, like racing the dads through twice and I am spent. And so the idea of doing that for three miles seems a little, uh, uh, you know, taxing to me. So I've not done it yet. Um, Whenever you watch these races, though, inevitably, the goal is that each participant gets to the finish, right? They want to get to the end of the race. And they know that what stands between them are a series of obstacles, And the longer they run that race and the more tired they get, the harder those obstacles become. Uh, I want to show you a clip of this guy who gets to the end of his Tough Mudder race and he's got to climb a wall uh, to show you what happens. Oh, crunch. I know that brings like the middle school boy in me watching that stuff. Um, I know some of you are like, that was kind of fun to watch. The rest of you are like, why did you show that? That's not very kind. Um, I show it because what strikes me about that is that here's this person who has has run this race. And and they've overcome obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. Yet another obstacle lies between them and, and where they want to be. And when they just get to the point where they think that they've overcome it, they lose their grip and they fall and they hit face first. Uh, but they get back up again, right? And, and they, they, he goes at it again and again and again until he overcomes. I think that these extreme races resonate with us as people uh, because we know that our lives are full of challenges and obstacles. Uh, I, I think they resonate with us because we know that in life, day after day after day, we face obstacles, in fact, some even talk about life as a race, and we know that each day is going to bring its new set of obstacles, and we're going to have to try to overcome them, and sometimes we're going to think that we've just about got it conquered, and we're going to fall, and we're going to hit our face, and we've got to get back up again. And somehow I think that translates to the real races, because somehow we can kind of take some control over conquering and overcoming, um, when we know that sometimes in life it's a, it's a whole lot harder. Just some of the obstacles that come to mind as as I think about life, just simply, I think about your schedule. Some of you are trying to manage your schedule, uh, a spouse's schedule, uh, multiple children, and each day it presents a new challenge. There's a new obstacle. Are are we going to have family time? Are we going to to, to have this God-honoring family with going all these different directions, right? It's an obstacle that stands before you uh, day in and day out. Another obstacle that came to mind is that uh, some of you see the finish line. Uh, you want to have children. Uh, you want to have uh, multiple children in your home. And, and there's this glaring obstacle in front of you called infertility. Or maybe you've hit your face on infertility enough times that you've decided, I'm going to move on to a different obstacle. Adoption or fostering and, and, and overcoming the challenges associated with those. You see the destination, but there's something that lies between you and where you want to be, right? Um, I think about obstacles when it comes to our relationships. Uh, All of us come up against things in our homes or between people that we love, conflict, and that we've got to find a way to overcome if we're going to reach the finish line. It shouldn't surprise us if obstacles are a part of life, that since your faith, uh, your relationship with Jesus is the essence of your life when you become a follower of Jesus, the obstacles are a part of your faith journey. And the reality is that as a follower of Jesus, you will come up against obstacle after obstacle after obstacle in your race. I think it's fitting that a couple of our our writers in Scripture speak of this journey as a follower of Jesus as a race. Uh, Words that come to mind are, are Paul's to Timothy, where he tells him, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith... Paul looks out at his life and he quantifies it as a race. When, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he, he looks out at this great commission that Jesus gives him, he, he knows what he needs to do. He knows who he needs to be, but it's been an arduous journey. He's had to fight the good fight. He's had to overcome challenges. Uh, he's had to train hard. There have been obstacles. There have been opposition. There's been opposition in his life and he's had to overcome it. I think of the, the, the writer uh, to the Hebrews. They write the letter, of the letter to the Hebrews in our New Testament towards the end. And they use these words in Hebrews chapter 12. Let us cast aside everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Once again, equating this journey as a follower of Jesus to a race. And along the way, it's going to require perseverance. It's going to require us to to overcome something, to throw some things aside. There are going to be obstacles along the way. In your journey of faith, you will face obstacles. People throughout time have faced obstacles as they've tried to honor God with their lives. I would submit to you the obstacles that we face are pretty universal. Now, certainly they are nuanced by the cultures in which we live, But I think the obstacles are universal. Here's just an example. Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, God tells them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from it, you will surely die. Uh, At some point in their life with God in the garden, the enemy, um, the adversary of God, Satan tempts them in the form of a serpent and says, you know, God didn't want you to eat from this because he knew if you ate from it, you would be like him and you you, you would see, you would really see. And so what's the obstacle that stands before Adam and Eve? Do we trust God? Does God really know best? Or, or can I figure out a better way? While you and I probably will never find ourselves in the Garden of Eden, while we'll probably never have a serpent crawl down a tree and tempt us to eat some of the forbidden fruit, uh, chances are that you and I both know what it's like to know when God has stated something clearly, and yet we wonder, do we have a better way? Can I do this differently? Is God really right on this? That distrust of God is is an obstacle that stands in front of all of us. Uh, Another example I think of is is Moses. And uh, Moses, on two accounts, reveals this incredible outburst of anger. One of them results in the death of an Egyptian, which eventually leads to 40 years in the wilderness in a place he doesn't know initially. The second time he has an outburst of anger, it results in him not being able to enter the promised land himself. He, he strikes a rock in anger and God says, Moses, be, you know, because of your sin and the people's sin, you, you won't see the promised land. Like you're going to see it from a distance. There's this beautiful scene at the end of Moses' life where he climbs up Mount Pisgah and he looks out towards the promised land, but Moses' feet never get to touch the promised land. Why? Because of his anger. And while you've probably not been in the position of Moses where you have to, you know, break up a fight between an Egyptian and a Hebrew and, and, and you decide to kill that Egyptian, uh, while you've probably have never been in a place where you had to take your stick and strike a rock, uh, chances are you've seen anger show up as an obstacle in your life, whether it be as a partner in a relationship, a mother or a father, uh, with your parents. It's probably become an obstacle at some point. I think the struggles are are universal. The obstacles are universal. They just are nuanced by our culture. Over the next few weeks, what we want to do is we want to dive into just three of the obstacles that we often encounter in life and more specifically in our journey of faith. And there are a number of places that we could go to look at these obstacles and how to overcome them and how to persevere through them. Even when we fall and we hit our face again and again and again. But where we've chosen to go is to a place in the Old Testament um, they're the words of the prophet Haggai. We chose these intentionally uh, because when you look at, at Haggai, it's often a book that, that in, in the Bible that many people just look past. Uh, it's one of what we call the minor prophets. Uh, minor not because their substance is minor, not because they're not important, but minor simply because of their length. There are 12 minor prophets Uh, It's it's the ones that are kind of uh, weird that we hear. Uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, uh, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. Those are kind of those weird names that we hear. But but Haggai is one of those prophets and he comes to Israel during the 6th century BC uh, and he proclaims a message to them that really causes them and calls them to confront some of the obstacles that were standing between them and God. And what you'll find is that in principle, those are the very same obstacles that you and I face. And it's not an exhaustive list. It's just three. Uh, Haggai is a prophet during um, a period in Israel's life that we call the post-exilic period. Don't let that mouthful, uh, you know, throw you off. Uh, The key words are post-exile. If you know the history of Israel, you'll know that as God led them through the wilderness under Moses, he brought them into the promised land with Joshua. Um, they they turn their hearts from God during the time of the judges. They repent. They clamor for a king. God begins to rule over them. And the people of God are in this united kingdom in the promised land. Well, after so- Saul is done being king and David follows him, then David is done. His son Solomon rules. And when Solomon's son Rehoboam takes the throne, The kingdom divides. And now we have all of God's people living in the same land, but now there are two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel with the capital of Samaria, the southern kingdom of Judah with the capital city of Jerusalem. The people's hearts begin to drift from God again. And with each passing king, they tend to to, to drift further and further away. And so in 722 BC, God raises up the Assyrians Uh, They ransack Samaria and they take people off to captivity, to exile. The southern kingdom falls around 586 BC and its inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah are taken off to Babylon. And so from 586 BC to 539 BC, the, the Jewish people are in captivity in Babylon. And in 539 BC, when Cyrus the Great, the Persian ruler, conquers Babylon he allows all these exiles from kingdoms all over that part of the world to return back home. And the Jewish people are among them. So in 539 BC, people start coming back to Jerusalem. They start coming back to Judah. So it's post exile. So Haggai is the first prophet that speaks to them following their exile to Babylon when they return. And when he returned and they lived there for about 20 years, their lives kind of get off track, and so God raises up a prophet. A prophet is usually seen as God's mouthpiece to kind of uh, awaken uh, people that have grown uh, stubborn or resistant to his ways. So if you have Haggai, if you've not found it yet, uh, we're going to be in Haggai chapter 1. Don't be afraid to use your table of contents. I know uh, I've heard people say that that's cheating. Uh, No, it's not. It's called being resourceful. There's a reason why you have a table of contents in your Bible. And so, Turn to those early pages, find the page number, and find Haggai. Uh, they'll save you paper cuts, I promise. Um, Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. So Haggai very specifically gives us these dates. It's the second year of King Darius, King Darius followed King Cambyses, who followed his father, Cyrus the Great. So 19 years have transpired since the first Jews returned from Babylon. Here's something that's really neat. We know that Zerubbabel and Joshua were among the very first to return from Babylon. How do we know that? Uh, Ezra recounts the people as they came back from Babylon uh, to Jerusalem. Here's what's really neat about the Bible is that there are many places where, although written in different places and at different times, collectively it confirms what the other writers are saying. Uh, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, uh, you have these gospel writers who all wrote in different places, different decades, and they recount this life of Jesus. And there's so much overlap that as you read their accounts, you get this full sense of the story of this life of who Jesus is. Well, the same thing happens as we read Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah. Three different writings in your Old Testament, and they all overlap, and they give us this full sense of what's happening among God's people at that time. And so we know that Zerubbabel and Joshua were some of the first people to return. 19 years prior to this date, 539 BC, they come back, and now here's Haggai, prophesying, preaching God's truth to them in 520 BC. And why does Haggai have to come and preach? Because the people have missed something. Verses 2, 3, and 4. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's, tem- the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? The first clue to us that God is frustrated with his people should be that he doesn't call them his people. In in verse two, he refers to them as these people. If you were to rewind through the pages of the old Testament, as God speaks to his people, uh, whenever he speaks with favor towards them, whenever he identifies with them, he's proud of them or he's encouraging them, he speaks to them as my people. And maybe you can recall some of the words that, that uh, Moses shared with Pharaoh. God says to let what? My people go. Uh, maybe you can remember the words, in, in, it's, it's in one of the history books of the Chronicles of the Kings. Uh, it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from evil, and seek my face, then I will hear them from heaven and I will come and heal their land. If my people, God says they're my people. But what does God say here in verse two? These people. Um, You've probably been there in your relationships before, haven't you? Have you ever talked with someone and they speak of their wife, not as my wife, but as the wife. Um, They're distancing themselves. It's usually a, a statement of frustration that comes. That husband of mine, not my husband. No, it's that husband of mine, right? There's some distance in there. Maybe you've done it with your children before. Your children, right? And <laughs> <They're> not mine. <laughs> your child did this. Or those children did this. Um, I've, heard, I've heard students do it. When I was in student ministry for years, uh, when you could tell a, a high school student or a college student was really upset with their parents, they would talk about the parents, right? The parents won't let me do this. The parents, it was a way of distancing themselves. God in this moment speaks of his people and he doesn't call them my people. These people. Should be our first clue. What's he frustrated by? These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Why is this important to God? 19 years ago when the people returned, Cyrus commissioned Zerubbabel and Joshua to lead a rebuilding effort of the temple. 19 years ago. 19 years ago, he says, you go back, you reestablish the temple of your God. This should have been important to Cyrus. It should have been important to Joshua because still in that time, the temple was the place where God's presence would dwell among his people. And so here they are, they've been sent off to captivity because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because of their neglect of who God is. Now they get a chance to go back. He's like, you better rebuild that temple. And 19 years later, still no temple. Why? Well, these people say the time has not yet come. Uh, the people kept putting it off. Well, tomorrow we'll get to that. And we got some things we have to do. You know, we, we got to get kind of the foundation set for our house. But, but we'll get to God's house tomorrow. We'll get to it next week. We'll get to it next year. And then what happens when next week comes? It gets pushed off again. What happens when next year comes? It gets pushed off again. And here they are 19 years later and God's house still lies in ruins. And he takes issue with it. Verse 4, is it a time for you yourselves? You said you didn't have time, but is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? He says you guys are living in paneled houses. Now this could mean two things. It could mean either they have these luxurious kind of appointments in their home. Wood paneling would have been a luxury Or the word's also used to speak of a roof. So it could be that their houses were just finished. They were capped off. Either way, the message is the same. You guys took the time in 19 years to finish your homes, but what about my home? This is the issue I have with these people is that they have misplaced their priorities. That's the first obstacle that we're going to see in this series is that that one of misplaced priorities. Is God going to be most important Or is he going to be kind of cast off and pushed to the fringes? And here's where I think, based upon the looks on your faces, that you can start to feel the weight of Haggai's word even for 2019. Because if we're honest, how often do we push God to the fringes in our life? How often do we say, God, I, I know this is important to you. I, I know what I read. I know what someone taught me. I, I know the conviction I feel. I, I know that when we had that moving life group meeting, I really felt like this was the decision I needed to make. I knew that was important, but, but I'll get to that tomorrow. And then what happens to tomorrow? Tomorrow becomes another tomorrow, and then tomorrow becomes another week, and then tomorrow becomes another year. And suddenly you look back at your life and your years down the road, and you're like, I still haven't done what I think God's called me to do. What, what do you busy your life with? What are you building in your life while you push God to the fringes? Where are you saying, God, I, I don't have time for this right now, but I promise I'll get to it. I guess I'm assuming that you've done this. I know that I've done this. There are times when I've said, okay, God, this is what you want, but I'm just going to push this off a little bit. Where are you neglecting what's most important to him? Because it's just not the right time for you. It's not convenient for you. God makes a couple of profound statements in the next few verses. Verse 5, he says, Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Maybe, maybe your version says, Consider your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And this is what the Lord Almighty says give careful thought to your ways. Haggai is the second shortest writing in the Old Testament. Um, it spans two chapters, a total of 38 verses. In those 38 verses, four times God charges Israel. Consider your ways. Think deeply about your ways. Think about your life. And in the context of this question, he, he's saying, uh, you didn't have time for me, but you had time to do your thing. You better think about what you've done. You ever had that moment? If you're a parent or if you've, um, you know, babysat children, provided childcare where a child makes a mistake and you tell them, you know, what? I want you to sit and think about what you've done. Ever been there? Anybody? Yeah, because you want them to kind of think about the, the repercussions of their actions. And here God has just said, you've neglected my temple, but he kind of helps them in their thinking. He, he says to them, you've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have you fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in Have you noticed you never have enough? Have you noticed that, that there's not enough to fill your belly? Have you noticed that there's not enough to drink? Have you noticed that you don't have enough money to, to pay what you need? Have you noticed that you're not warm? Maybe there's a connection there between what you're experiencing and the choices that you've made. And if that's not enough, we we see it come to life in verses 8 through 11. God says, Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. This is what I want you to do, is what the Lord says. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while well, each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. God shows them that there's a direct correlation between their misplaced priorities and some of the hardship that they've been experiencing. I I emphasize that word some because here's what we have to understand, and please, 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 please get this. What you're going to hear me say is not saying that every bit of hardship you experience in your life, every bit of suffering is because of your actions. The reality is that we live in a world marked by sin. And there are tragedies and there are suffering and there's hardship that comes upon all of us through no direct result of our actions. But some of the hardship that you and I experience is a result of our actions. And God's helping Israel say, listen, you, you want to know why? There's been a drought. You want to know why your lives have kind of been destitute and ruined? Because I've been an afterthought. There are times when all of us have to look in the mirror and we have to own that some of the hardship we're experiencing in our lives is because God's been pushed to the fringes. Um, maybe you look out at, at, at one of your significant relationships and you see that it's just marked by incredible conflict. It seems to be unresolvable conflict. And yet when you look at your last five years, 10 years, 20 years, uh, you see that never once did you try to align that relationship around the plans and the purposes of God. So should it surprise you that it's marked by hardship and difficulty? I have conversations with people that are just struggling financially. And, and if you've ever struggled with finances, then you know the incredible weight that that is on you. Um, the, the, the potential of, of not being able to satisfy your debts, the potential of not being able to know where your next meal comes from. Is incredibly difficult. It's a huge emotional load to bear, and sometimes that's brought on because you haven't aligned your lives around the right priorities. You wanted and you wanted and you wanted, and so you bought and, you bought and you bought and you bought, and one paycheck to paycheck to paycheck. Once that wasn't enough, it became maxed out credit card to maxed out credit card to maxed out credit card to line of credit to line of credit to line of credit, and now you find yourself in this mess. But but why is it? It's Because you didn't align your priorities. Like what were his plans for you? What were his priorities for you? What were his purposes for you? Instead, you just tried to satisfy all of your desires. Those are hardships that the reality is they're brought on by your choices. Again, not all hardships, not all suffering, but some are a direct result of our choice of whether or not God becomes a priority to us or not. Here's the beauty, though. It's not all bad news. Yes, when the obstacle of misplaced priorities stands in our way, does it keep us from running the race like we should? Do we fall and smack our face on the, on the wall? Yeah. But it doesn't have to be that way. Here's what we read in verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, that's just a fun name to say, by the way, um, Enjoy that one this week. Uh, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. That sounds a little different than these people, doesn't it? I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. If you do the math, 23 days transpire from when the first rebuke comes to when Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people take up the work and they reorder their lives around God's Priority, like he's the number one for them. That's incredible. 23 days and their whole lives change. What caused that change? What caused that response? I, I think the key is verse 12. The final six words. And the people feared the Lord. Through the prophet's words, the people were able to see the rightful place that God should have in their lives. I think it's even deeper than that, though. There were specific words that the prophet Haggai used. Five times in these 15 verses, it refers to God as the Lord Almighty, if you are reading from an NIV. If you're reading from an English Standard Version, it says the Lord of hosts. That's a name specific to God that's used close to 300 times in our Old Testament. One third of them occur in Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all post-exile prophets. It's a word that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament and translated, the Lord of heaven's armies. The word host can refer to angels' armies, heaven's armies, all the starry hosts in the sky. It's a statement of God's absolute sovereignty, his incredible might, his all-powerful nature. Like, like It's an expression of his majesty and his his might that that no one can compare to. And so again and again, as Haggai speaks to the people, he says, the Lord Almighty says this, the Lord Almighty says this, the Lord Almighty says this. And I think suddenly what happened for Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people there in Judah, they said, oh my goodness, what have we done? This is God. There's no one like him. There is no one that our lives should be oriented around, but beside him. Like like He's the only one. And so that, that invokes this holy reverent fear in them and their lives are reordered around what's most important to him. And they get started on that temple. And it should be no surprise that as they reorder their lives around God, what, what, what happens? Uh, look at these words, uh, verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of the whole remnant. Is it any surprise that these people who have gone through incredible hardship suddenly have incredible courage? Because they reorient their lives around God as their chief priority. What was misplaced priorities, they they, they look out at the finish line and they overcome the obstacle. And the result is that they're encouraged. Their spirits are built up. Do we understand that if we will come face to face with the the reality of the greatness of who God is, his his overwhelming might, his majesty, that there's no one like him. In all the earth, he is the God of angels' armies. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of all the starry hosts. Like there is no one like him that's created the heavens and the earth that loves his people so much that he would send his son to die for them. If we can come face to face with those realities, then it it makes us force God to the center, doesn't it? It's almost like a black hole that draws everything to it. He becomes number one. And when he becomes number one, what happens? We start aligning our schedules around him. We create margin in our life to make sure that worshiping him is a priority. Reading in his, his word is a priority. Praying to him is a priority. Serving is a priority. Because he's the priority. It affects how we spend our money. It affects how we spend our time. It affects how we work. It changes our conversations in the break room. It changes the way we treat our employees. It helps us, you know, extend grace that's just incredibly ridiculous to those around us. It changes the way we treat our neighbors. Because when God is priority, his plans, his purposes, they shape everything else. But if we push him to the fringes, we don't ever experience that when we reorient around him, guess what happens? Our spirits are encouraged. He lifts our spirits along the way because we recognize that he is with us in what we do and where we go. This really matches up what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He says to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. God's intent is that he's your priority. And with him as your priority, what he has to say trickles down to every other area of your life. One thing I would, I would share is that I know that some of you listening are not yet followers of Jesus. Here's what I want you to hear in the midst of this is that as we talk about God being our priority, this is not about something that is miserable. This is about God inviting us into his story. And it's a hard story sometimes to persevere in, but when we persevere and we, we run his race There is this fullness that comes with it. And our hope for you is that you would find your place in his story. That you would see that that your name can be written in his pages. And you can experience the same fullness of life that that others in this room experience. And your life will never feel complete apart from him. You were made for him. As we think about uh, overcoming obstacles and running this race with perseverance, here's what I hope you understand if you're a follower of Jesus, is that you can't do this alone. You can't do it alone. Uh, There's this really neat um, passage in Ezra. In Ezra chapter 5, when he recounts what's happening among uh, the Jewish people during this day, here's what we read, Ezra chapter 5 verse 2. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. It mirrors exactly what we just read uh, in that last passage in Haggai. But look at the next statement. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. When I I read that this week, I just kind of came undone for a moment. I thought, how how encouraging. Here here are Haggai and Zechariah who go and they proclaim a hard word to the people. Guys, your priorities are messed up. But once they got it right, what what did Haggai and Zechariah do? They stood right there. You got this, guys. You can do it. They're cheering them on. And I want you to know that as followers of Jesus, that that your, your ministers here at Lebanon Christian Church, we cheer you on. We pray for you. you. We want to see you have, have God as your priority. And we want you to cheer us on. Because we're on this journey as well. And we want to cheer each other on. We cannot become the people of God oriented around him. Unless we're cheering for each other. And supporting each other. This is what makes life groups so important. As we, we, we teach about life groups again and again. You need to be connected with a small group of people that are following Jesus. So you can live out the one another's together. Holding one another accountable. Accountable admonishing one another, comforting one another, encouraging one another, loving one another. We need other people to surround us and to be a part of this with us because sometimes we get exhausted on this race and it's hard to overcome that wall. We need other people. I want to show you one more clip from uh, the very same race, uh, the very same type of race. It's it's a different venue, different location. It's a different... When I found that clip this week, man, it had me in tears. I'll just be honest because I, I saw that picture uh, of people coming together. Uh, all those racers had the race in common, right? That they all want to get to the end? But man, sometimes people just get tired on the way and they have trouble overcoming the obstacles that creep up in front of us. And when that happens, we need other people, other people to come around us to help us to, to say the right thing. To, sometimes it's a harsh word. Sometimes it's a kind word to keep us moving. And to see all those people surround that racer, I think that's a picture of what God wants for us in the kingdom. And so as we strive to overcome this obstacle of misplaced priorities and to put God at number one, don't try to do it in isolation. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, Thank you for this incredible word. Uh, Lord, I am just in awe that a message that you proclaimed in 520 B.C., 2,539 years ago, uh, speaks with such relevance today. You are good. uh, You are faithful. Your word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, God. Help us uh, um, abide by your truth. Help us, if we're followers of Jesus, to find those people to do this journey with Lord, for those that aren't yet followers, God, may they see that they have a place in your story. And as they align with your story, as they start running your race, that there are people there to help them uh, reach the destination to finish the race to keep the faith. And it's in your name we pray and trust in the name of Jesus. Amen.